This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha's Kisisa. We already started talking a little bit about Kisisa in our special edition of Parsha Panorama for Parsha's Para. You can go back and listen to that. But right here at the database, we're focusing now just on Kisisa, Kisisa's contribution to the Torah, and there's a lot in Kisisa. The first two alios are packed. Once you get out of the first two alios, it's pretty much smooth sailing. But from our Parsha Panorama perspective, we have a lot of work to do. And that is because, although there's one topic that clearly overwhelms Parsha's Kisisa, there are truly many topics in Kisisa, which makes the Parsha itself very overwhelming. But the main topic, which is the Cheta Egel, the unfortunate and tragic sin of the golden calf, the worship of the golden calf, um, whoever the perpetrators were, whether it's the Erev Rav or other members of Klai Yisrael, whether they actively sinned or only passively sinned. The point is that although this story, once again, is the focal point of the Parsha, there are so many other topics. You would think that the entire Parsha could have just been a Parsha about the Egel Hazav, but there's so many other topics, and we need to try to understand what all of them are doing here. How do they, you know, how do these topics inform one another about, you know, what's happening in Parsha's Kisisa. Because if Kisisa is not just a Parsha about the Chayta Egel, then what is it a Parsha about? There's so much here, so we have to try to uncover um, and understand, most importantly, what, what's happening in this Parsha. And once again, also, we want to know uh, the, the purpose of Kisisa in the larger scheme of the Torah. And obviously, this story has a lot of ramifications, Chazal say that we are still suffering from that chet today. And so that behooves us to try to understand, especially in a world where we don't really appreciate the concept of Avodah Zarah the same way that it was appreciated um, generations prior. Um, this is something that we just spoke about in Real Talk Torah with uh, my brother of Mendy when we were talking about modern-day Avodah Zarah and the role of atheism in, in, in paganism or vice versa. But um, either way, we have to try to understand then what about the Chet Egel can speak to us today, especially in terms of the fact that um, you know, this is apparently a very monumental part of the Torah. So with that said, let's try to figure out what Kisisa is. So if Kisisa is not just about the Chet Egel and the aftermath of the Chet Egel, so then what is Kisisa about? So at first glance, if we were to look at all the topics together, and in just a moment I will list them all for you, we would say perhaps that the most reasonable summary of Parsha's Kisisa is that Kisisa gives us the finishing touches of the Mishkan commandments, and then we get to the Chet Egel and everything that takes place afterwards. Now, even that, which um, is helpful, it's not a full answer to any of our questions. Um, for one thing, we're, when we get to the questions, we'll, we'll see that there are a few more questions that have to be addressed. But when we get to those questions, so we'll have to understand why the Parsha was apportioned and allotted and allocated the way it is. 
because we try here at Parsha Panorama not just to take for granted that our Masura divided up the Parshios a certain way, but we would like to understand why everything that's in this Parsha belongs in this Parsha and not in a different Parsha. And if we could make the argument, many of the finishing touches of the Mishkan should be with the Mishkan Parshios, right? So we should have had, you know, in Parshas Truma Tetzave, whatever finishing touches would go there, so then Kisisa should start off with the description about um, how Moshe Rabbeinu was up, getting ready to retrieve the Luchos, and then, you know, the Chumash the, the, the says, Ki Moshe, that Moshe delayed. That would have been a great place to start a new Parsha. We don't do that, so we have to try to understand why Kisisa starts off with the finishing touches of the Mishkan, keeping also in mind that Rashi says that all of the Mishkan, um, at least in a certain sense, a basic explanation of the Mishkan, um, and this is based on sources in Chazal, the Mishkan really serves as an atonement for the Chet Egel. Now, something to keep in the back of our minds also, that apparently the Para Aduma is also an atonement for the Chet Egel. So apparently the Chet Egel has a lot of atonements, and that could also speak to the gravity and the impact of the Chet Egel, which is not just, you know, one Avera and it takes one atonement. Apparently there's a lot that's needed to atone for it. So that said... We want to figure out from that perspective as well why there's so much about the Mishkan and you need to rely on, on Rashi's um, invoking of Ein Muktam Mukhar Batura to, uh, to just accept that you could have all of this Mishkan material before the Egel, but even in the same Parsha. So let's, let's try to understand this. Now, before we can fully understand it, let's, let's get to the list of all the topics, the breakdown of Parshas Kisisa. So I have nine sections, which sounds a little bit daunting, but it's really it's it's really not so terrible. We'll you know we'll do our best to get through. And in this section, we have in the first section. We have this. Um, we actually have Parsha Shkalim, right? The, the passage of Machzus Shekel, which we read a few weeks ago, just before Purim. Um, obviously before Zachar, but we had this, uh, the passage of Machzus HaShekel. Something to consider. What is that doing here in our Parsha? Okay? Number two, we have the commandments for the construction of the Kiar. And this is the final Kli of the Mishkan. Then the, the second Kli that's not in Shruma that you would think maybe belongs in Shruma, we can make the argument that it doesn't necessarily belong in Shruma, and there'll be a very simple answer to that question. Why is the Kiar not in Shruma? Last week we addressed why the Mizbeach HaZahav was not in Shruma, but it was in Tetzaveh. But okay, so we have the Kiar. The Kiar was the laver or the faucet through which the Kohanim would, would uh, wash themselves or they'd be washed by the Levium to prepare for their Avodah. Number three, we have, and really maybe we could put three and four together, but three, we have the formula for the Shemen HaMishcha, and four is the formula for the Ketoras. So the Shemen HaMishcha was the oil that was used to anoint all the holy objects in the Mishkan and the holy people of the Mishkan. Um, the Ketoras was the spice, the incense, um, a mixture of different spices to create a, a beautiful smelling incense, which was one of the um, uh, the special avodos, which we spoke about last week in Tetzaveh, because the Mizbeach HaZahav is also known as the Mizbeach HaKetores, maybe the formula for the Ketores should have been with um, Parshas Tetzaveh. See, so you know, see how this works? The Shemen HaMishcha, we might have argued, should belong with all the Kalim, or with the Kohanim, in either Truman Tetzaveh. The, 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 the Ketores 
probably should have gone into Tzava or anywhere where the, we would have put the Mizbeach HaZahav, so the Ketoros should have been next to that. So it's not. And we can maybe understand the Shem and Hamishcha and the Ketoros being right next to each other in in, uh, in Parashas Kisisa, at least the, the being together makes sense because the truth is that both of them are very similar concoctions, um, and they're they're both um, they're both made by by perfumers. So, you know, may, maybe those things belong together, but still. Here in Kisisa, it's strange. You know, like the, these are Mishkan leftovers, once again, that could have been anywhere else. The Kiar could have probably also been somewhere else. Machzis HaShekel, which was the collection for the, um, um, for, for the needs of the Timidim and for other Mishkan needs. So these are all things that L'Chorah could have been anywhere in the other Mishkan Parshios. In section 5, we get another Mishkan leftover topic, the appointment of Betzalel and Ohaliyav. Betzalel from Sheva Yehuda and Ohaliyav from Sheva Dun. These are the two main construction workers, the two, um, uh, the two leaders on the site. And again, according to Rashi, none of this is even happening yet. So, so just again something to think about. Number six, we we have a reference to a lot of Hilchas Shabbos. Okay, interesting. Why is Hilchas Shabbos here? So, um, the Pashup Shab, which we get from Chazal, is um, that Hilchas Shabbos is here to tell you that you don't work on the Mishkan on Shabbos. You know all the you know all the beautiful, wonderful things you have in mind for for the Mishkan. It's not going to be Docha Shabbos. It will not override Shabbos. You still have to keep Shabbos, and therefore you will not work on Shabbos, even for the purposes of the Mishkan. Um, in terms of Hashkafa behind this, maybe it's something that we'll elaborate a little bit more when we get to Parshas Vayakhel, but um, Shabbos, in a certain sense, you're supposed to see that all your work is done, right? like the song. And all your work is done. And the reason for that is that, if you think about it, Shabbos represents the... Mishkan in time, it actually represents not just the Mishkan in time, but represents the complete Mishkan. So imagine working on a Mishkan while the Mishkan is finished. It's a little bit awkward. Imagine you're setting up for a party, um, for, and, and, uh, and the birthday boy, the party guest, is already there, and you're still putting up the decorations. At a certain point, you've got to stop putting up the decorations because the birthday boy already sees. So if the Shechina comes down and it's Shabbos, and you're still working on it, so, you know, at a certain point, we've got to say, you know, drop what you're doing and just assume that you're finished. So, um, if, you know, if that mashal works for you, then great. But, um, but the point is that we don't work on the Mishkan on Shabbos. Okay. Finally, section 7, we have the long-winded story, the very painful story to read of the Chet Egel, which itself has a bunch of components. Um, you know, the, again, when I break up the Parshios and when I do these little sections, so... You know, you can, you can theoretically break it up in many different ways. So I just put one giant umbrella of the Chet Egel. In this section, the Chumash describes the Luchos that the Bnei Yisrael were about to get, you know, a little bit of a foreshadowing of these Luchos that they would be shattered in just a few moments. But the Luchos are described. Then we get to the actual Chet Egel. The people bombard Aaron. They say, um, you, know, what, what are, um, you know, what are we going to do? We, we, oh, here's what we should do. We should build a god. Fine. We have Hashem's response that that this uh, um, that that um, tells Moshe Rabbeinu go back down see what the people are doing, and then we have Moshe's initial prayer, the the passage of Vayichal Moshe, where Moshe um, you know begs Hashem to forgive the Bnei Israel. Then Moshe actually comes back on site, and he he we have the Shvir Saluchos. He shatters the Luchos. 
and he tests them like a sota, he makes them drink it, right? And then Moshe Rabbeinu says, either forgive them or mecheni na mesifrecha, wipe me out of your Torah. And then Hashem tells Moshe, lecha le mize, he says, go. Um, and then, um, he, says, uh, and then he, tell, he tells Moshe Rabbeinu, go forward, I'm sending a malach with you, and just, you know, just keep going. The Bnei Yisrael are, are stripped of their crowns. Then Moshe Rabbeinu removes his tent, his Ohel Moed, as it's referred to in the Chumash, he moves it off campus. Then we have that, that, that very dubious and esoteric passage where Moshe Rabbeinu um, asks Hashem, show me your ways, and, and, show me, show, and he wants to know um, the, the deepest secrets of Hashem, and Hashem says, I can only show you my back. And then Moshe Rabbeinu is about to get the new luchos, and in so doing, Hashem teaches Moshe Rabbeinu the Yud Gimel Midos Harachamim, which we say every every Tainus Tzibor, and we say every um, you know, every Amim Narayim, every Yom Tov, really. And it's interesting that the luchos are really the beginning and the end of this passage, right? The 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 lucha, the, the Chet Egel starts off with the luchos as they're about to come down, and then ends with the the receiving of the new luchos which uh, took place on Yom Kippur, according to Masorah. So that's all the Chet Egel. Then we get to a new passage, which is really strange. What's going on in this new passage? Well, there's a command against making molten gods, which kind of fresh off the Chet Egel, we could understand that. The Chumash talks about the three pilgrimage holidays, right, the Shalosh Regalim. We have Shabbos in there. We talk about Bikurim, Basar B'chalav. Why in the world are these things coming up? Why are we, you know, well, why are we reading about these things? So if you look really um, closely, you find, and really the Ramban helps us out a little bit, he says that this passage is the bris chadash. It's the new bris. And this is a renewing of the tanoim, or the, the, the terms of the contract, as it were. Because this passage is very similar to a passage at the end of Parshash Mishpatim, where we had Kabbalah Satora Part 2, and there we had a whole contract of, of different mitzvos, the Shlosh Regalim, Shemitah, Shabbos, Basar B'chalav, Bikurim, and we tried to address as much as we could what the, why those different mitzvos made up the bris, but the terms of that bris are being renewed here, why? Because the Chet Egel just happened, and we kind of overturned, in a certain sense, the Nasev and Ishma commitment that we had made. So, here, right here, in the, we have a Bris Chadash to try to fix what was broken. Okay? And then finally, at the very, very end, we have the story of Section 9, Moshe Rabbeinu's shining face and the mask that he had to wear. It's interesting, all of us, you know, are going around wearing masks now. We're not zochah to be able to see each other. Maybe, you know, this represents a, a lowering of our spiritual madriga, perhaps. Um, and Moshe Rabino, at his time, you know, he had to wear a mask and they weren't able to look at his face. He would only take off that mask when he would be teaching them Torah, which is an interesting um, lesson in its own right, that there's a time to let his face shine. But Moshe Rabino had to wear this face mask because they couldn't appreciate... Um, or they couldn't, um, they, they could, they couldn't view his face. So, um, so, so we, there's, there's a lot uh, to have discussion about here. So we'll just focus on just some of the questions. One of the things we want to understand, which is, um, you know, what we've basically titled 
um, this Parsha Panorama for, and that is to understand the Chet Egel. That's the, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the hard, you know, the big umbrella question of the Parsha. What exactly was it? Did the people actually think that the golden calf that they had just created took, took them out of Mitzrayim? So all the Mepharshim are bothered by this, and they all say it's, 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 it's impossible to accept it. Going from the Ramban to the Rokeach to the Kuzari to many, many Mepharshim who, who point this out. Um, I, can, I can give you a more exhaustive list if you want, but um, there's no, no reason to do that now. But no one really believes that they believed that the golden calf that they had just made had taken them out of Mitzrayim. So the question is, what did they think? And what, what was right, what was wrong about this? Because right, it seems that if we give an Adon Lekavzchos, benefit of the doubt, to Klai Yisrael, they're really just trying to reconnect to Hashem where they felt that, they, you know, that Hashem was gone and they needed some way. It wasn't necessarily like they just had this Avodah Zara, Yitzhahara, you know, brewing inside, and like, oh, when can we serve idols again? They felt that they had lacked something at that moment, and especially when they thought Moshe was gone, and then they, they panicked, and they froze. And then when they unfroze, they acted and did something that they should not have. But all the while... There, uh, you know, if we could even call it a vodazara, most don't even call the Chayta Egel a mafurish explicit avodazara. Maybe it was pseudo avodazara, and that that avodazara, the 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 extent to which it was avodazara, was really an attempt. Um, I don't know how earnest we can call it, but if we're being you know lamid for them, we would say it was a pretty sincere um, um, attempt at avodas Hashem, and just gone wrong. So now that we can, you know, now that we're trying to be a little bit malamed schus for them, so the question is then, where does the sin lie? Um, where the kana, the the kina of 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 Hashem, the the zealotry, and if we can call it the jealousy, right, that God is referred to as a jealous God in this week's parsha. So uh, where where does that come in? And you know, to try to understand theologically Hashem's disapproval of this attempt at avodas Hashem gone wrong. So where's the gone wrong aspect of this? What was so terrible about it? So you, you might say that, oh, well, Hashem explicitly commanded that you can't make them. And maybe, you know, maybe herein lies the problem. But maybe, you know, they understood that to mean that, you know, we can't make it to, you know, to, to serve other things that are not Hashem. And really, we don't think that this is the God itself. Even, you know, you know this, is, this is the seed of God. You know, like, the, like you know, some say that they, um, they're based on um, the, uh, the, the sites they saw at Harsinai, the, the, the Misa Merkava, the, the chariot of God, they were trying to recreate some kind of chariot to host Hashem. And so then, again, where, where possibly have they gone wrong? So, here is where we try to start addressing some of the other topics in our Parsha, because this is also, you know, we can't ignore those things. And even though they might not be the most exciting parts of the Parsha, but they do actually inform the rest of the Parsha in a very important way. Before we get to how they do that, let's give some Pashup Shat Balabatish um, answers, which, again, Balabatish is not necessarily bad or deficient. In fact, I think a lot of the time, that which we call Balabatish is actually most accurate, especially Api Pashup Shat. And it's important to appreciate the, the, the Pashat level answers to these questions. Because they, they will not only help us, you know, understand how the chumash is broken down, but once we once we appreciate them, then we can um, take it to the next level.
So starting with Machsis HaShakel, a simple question of why exactly is this here? So if you want, you can look up Rav Hirsch, who has a nice idea about how the Machsis HaShakel represents the nexus between the Mikdash and society at large. But, um, you know, just to get more to the basic Pashup Shah, the Ramban, the Rashbam, they both point out that, yes, we're still talking about the needs of the Mishkan, and that's why, you know, the, the whole beginning of Kisisa is, is um, a bunch of laws pertaining to the Mishkan. Uh, so in terms of, again, why, how do we get up to Machtas HaShakel, just to, to begin with? The, the Ibn Ezra points out the whole concept of the Chathas HaKippurim um, from last week's parsha. Right, the um, Tetzave closed, one of its closing topics was talking about the Chathas Kippurim, the special carbon Chathas um, um, that was serving as an atonement. He connects it to the money of the Machtas HaShakel, which is referred to as a Kesef Kippurim. It's a money of atonement, that there are different things of our financial a- assets that we give over for Kapara. So um, um, all these commentators are basically connecting the end of Tetzaveh to the beginning of Kisisa. But what we still have to explain is why this, in fact, is the beginning of Kisisa. I've had an answer that um, in, a, in a longer essay that I wrote um, talking about how the there's a, there's I think another aspect of foreboding in the beginning of Kisisa, which talks about how there's a certain way to count the Klal Yisrael to protect them in a, in the circumstance in in which Hashem might possibly want to plague Klal Yisrael that if if they, he wants to make a magefa against them right um, uh, and so the Chumash refers to uh, the moment that Hashem would want to make a magefa against Klal Yisrael if his anger flares against them. Uh, for for doing the wrong thing, so it's important that there's a kofar benafsha that's pre-established, right? We said that's why the shkalim, the gemara, uh, so the gemara says that the shkalim, um, it's gemara megillah, um, but why the shkalim needed to preempt Haman's decree because Klai were doing, you know, was doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing, and therefore the money came and you know, was it served as a restitution. So the reason why this is a, this is a very fascinating foreshadowing in Kisisa, if you think about it, is that Klaistral happens to do a really not nice thing that they shouldn't be doing, and it's pretty appropriate that there is a um, you know that that we have in mind this concept of paying a restitution for our souls in the moment that Hashem is not happy with us, with us and wants to make a magefa against us, because that's in fact exactly what the Chumash says happens in the Chayta Egel. There is in fact the magefa against Klaistral. So. Imagine if they were able to have something like a like a machzus shekel at that moment, you know, something that would have proven to be very helpful for them. At the time, they did not have that, and in fact, Kleinstraw was punished in many ways as a whole, as a klal. Okay, so um, that, that's one thing to think about in terms of machzus shekel. Um, but we also have to explain um, is the kiar. And the Shemana Mishcha and the Ketores, the whole entire region of Kisisa, which includes all these, you know, Mishkan leftovers. So, is there any structure to these laws? Like, what are these doing here? So, just going back to Pashapshat, the Ibn Ezra gives a really a nice answer. It's a very consistent answer if you think about it. He says all of the Mishkan leftovers that we find. Um, so, you, know, you have to be careful. But he says all of the Mishkan leftovers that we find. In um, in Kisisa, they are what I'm going to refer to as non-communal donations. Now, what do I mean by non-communal donations? Meaning, all these different pieces of the puzzle of the Mishkan that are in the Rishon of Kisisa, whether it's Machzus Shakel, whether it is 
a um, whether whether it is the 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 mirrors that were donated for the the kior or the spices for the shemen mishcha or the ketores, all these things they are non communal donations, meaning they are either not communal or they're not donations. So, um, so in simpler terms, these um, so the the machzis shekel, for example, was not a donation. That was more like a tax. Right, it it wasn't that you know if you if you're in the mood that you can give a machzis a shekel if you're not in the mood don't give a machzis a shekel right uh, compare and contrast that to purchase truma where Hashem says kol ish libo any person whose heart inspires him and motivates him he can give towards the mishkan project so that was true for many of the materials of the mishkan not so for the machzis a shekel you didn't have a choice. Everyone had to give the machs a shekel. You couldn't give more, you couldn't give less. That's something we spoke about for Parsha Shkalim. But the point is that this is communal, but it's not a donation. Now, contrast this, for example, from the kiar. The kiar was made up of, of, of mirrors that were donated by the, by the women, according to Chazal. Right? The maros tsovos, literally the, the, the mirrors of legions. What does that mean? So Chazal say the mirrors that produced legions, the mirrors that through, through which the women would beautify themselves and compete, so to speak, with their husbands and convince their husbands to be with them even in their subjugation in Egypt. So those mirrors were donated by the women. Chazal talk about how Moshe Rabbeinu initially didn't want to use these mirrors and Hashem said nonsense. These are the, this is the most beautiful thing, the beautiful, most beautiful mitzvah of creating family of Klai Israel, creating children between a husband and a wife, um, you know, the, you know the, this is one of the holiest things. Hashem says, Avada, I want that in the Mishkan. But what's the point? The point is that this was not actually a communal donation. The, the, the kior is made up of a bunch of individual donations. And the same thing for the Shem and Mishkan and the Ketores. These came from individual... Um, sorry, so um, they, they were... Um, so uh, these things were, were obligatory. So again, uh, um, you have in uh, um, so b- basically the the structure is that. So the point specifically again is that whatever is listed in Kisisa is not one of the communal donations. So when it came to the Kiar, for example, this was not a communal donation. This was specifically the women's donation. When it came to Machtas HaShakel, it wasn't even a donation, it was a tax. And looking at the Ibn Ezra again, when it came to the Shaman HaMeshcha and the Ketores, these were specifically um, 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 given by the Nesim. These were provided by the Nesim and not by the Tzibor. So that's why these, parsh- these um, topics do not go with the Truma Tetzave Parshios, which focus on the communal donations, because again, these uh, these are not communal donations um, here in Kisisa. Kisisa is more about obligation, which um, is actually really important. Um, and it's gonna and we're gonna see that there's an important foil between this and what we find in the Chet Egel. Because if you look at the Chet Egel and what in fact the Chet Egel was, even if perhaps in a certain sense it was an earnest attempt at Avodas Hashem, but even with all the best intentions, which we can Assume Klai Israel had, sometimes all the best intentions is not sufficient to get you out of guilt and harm's way when you are, in fact, doing the wrong thing. 
the most extreme case would be to kill someone with good intentions when you shouldn't have killed them. So the reason I just use that muscle is that we're playing with fire over here. In this case, we're playing with uh, playing with gold. And when you're playing with gold and perhaps a Vodazara, you know, even your best intentions might not save you. Right? It's not always the thought that counts. And there are, in fact, things that are intolerable, and we can't just let you be you when you're creating a Chaita Egel, you're creating an Egel Hazav. So with that in mind, let's, let's try to understand the Chaita Egel, but also in light of the other topics, right? Because on the one hand, we understand why the Mishkan leftovers don't necessarily belong in Truma and Tzave, but why are they with Kisiso? Just because there was nowhere, you know, nowhere else to put them? Right, so why exactly would, would, would these topics be here? Parenthetically, you know, why we would have um, Betzalel, for example, being this, um, being uh, placed in charge of the Mishkan, you know, here in Kisisa. So it could be it's connected to his grandfather Chur, who Chazal Talas was killed at the site, at the site of the Chet Egel when he tried to stop them. You might also say that this is not a Communal donation, either you know, this is um, part of the uh, um, part part of the prescription is that you have to have these individuals, Batsal and Oli, of leading the project. So maybe if that, I don't know if that can connect to the Ibn Ezra, but you'll notice again the contrast that based on the Ibn Ezra we've been able to note between Truma Tetzava and the Mishkan leftovers in Kisisa is the difference between the Divas Leib of the Tzibur, that we as a Tzibur we want to. Contribute something. We would love to do something with the inspiration of our hearts. Versus Hashem saying, "I have parameters. Here's how you have to do it. You don't really have any choice." Machzas Hashakel. You might want to give more when it comes to Machzas Hashakel. You might not be able to give, and you might want to give less. It doesn't matter. Everyone has to give the same. When it comes to the Shem and Hamishcha, the Ketores, you might say, "Hey, I would love to give to that." There are certain things that apparently, even with your best inspiration, Hashem says, I don't want you to contribute to that. I have a specific intention, and I want that, I, you know, I want the Nesim to, to, um, to contribute that aspect. Or the Maros Tsovos, I specifically want something from the women, Hashem says, something that the men could not possibly give. Interesting that the women are highlighted, um, uh, if you think about it, they're highlighted twice in our parsha implicitly, uh, by the Chet Egel, by them having not sinned with the Chet Egel, but also by the Kior, that Hashem said, I specifically want their mirrors. So for, for, you know, for, for all those uh, who you know, want to uh, plead sexist against the Torah, so just, you know, just consider that. Um, I, I, you know, those people won't be satisfied by this anyway. But that's, uh, you know, that, that's its own problem. I feel like this is a recurring topic in this uh, podcast. Anyway, but what, what, what's important here? On one hand, you have, my heart inspires me and I want to do something. And many times Hashem says, that's great, I love it. Let's give it to, a, let's, let's, put, let's make a project out of it. And yet there are times where Hashem says, the inspiration's great, but... I have rules. Why does Hashem have the rules that He has? Sometimes we can understand them, sometimes we cannot, but at the end of the day, they are His rules. Even if you think Elohei Chasev Elohei Zav would be a great institution, a great incorporation, Hashem says, I don't think so, and therefore Hashem is right and we're wrong. And you don't have to like that, but you have to respect that. And if you think about the Chet Egel, as earnest that attempt as it may have been in Avodah Hashem, you know, something that you call a massage and someone else 
calls uncomfortable. So that's no longer a massage, that's harassment. And the Chayta Egel, in a certain sense, was spiritual harassment against the Rebbe Shalom, if we can call it that. It was, um, you know, if, it was an adultery. If someone, if someone says, you know, I think my relationship with Hashem will be better if I serve an idol, my relationship with my spouse will be better if I sleep with someone else, chas v'shalom. So obviously, we are, you know, we, we, are, we are no longer talking about Amavodas Hashem, or, you know, we're not talking about the, you know, the, what's best for the relationship, even if you think in your mind that this is what's best. Now, obviously, I'm using very extreme, you know, analogies here, but the Chet Egel is a pretty extreme case, and we have to consider how sometimes you might think that, listen, I, I think, uh, you know, this would be something that's very holy, and Hashem says, that which might be holy, this is not the context for it. Let's look back, just for example, at the the institution of the Shem and Mishka and the Ketoros, the specific way they're commanded. You'll notice they have something in common. Um, if you look at the Pesukim, the Pesukim are almost identical. Hashem says for each of them, you cannot recreate this formula in any you know, context that you want. If you recreate the exact formula for the Shem and HaMishcha or for the Ketoros, for the sake of anointing yourself with the Shem and HaMishcha or smelling the Keteris. Let's say you're thinking, oh, you know what would be great for my Besamim on Yom Tov? Or Motzei, sorry, we don't have Besamim on Motzei Yom Tov. Um, this just came up in the DAF recently. Um, no, if, if I Besamim for Motzei Shabbos, if I, you know, uh, if I made a Keteris, that would be the greatest Besamim ever. Guess what? You violated Nisar Deir Isa. You're not allowed to recreate the Keteris for your own purposes. You're not allowed to recreate the Shana Mishcha for your own purposes. You're taking something that's holy and you are secularizing it. Now, Keep this model in mind when we think about Shabbos. Shabbos was one of the Mishkan modifiers. The Mishkan modifier that says, you might think, hey, like I, you know, I want to use my, my um, special holy day to do an avoda, which seemingly has a holy purpose building the Mishkan, but what you actually do is you secularize the Mishkan by doing it on Shabbos. And not only that, you secularize Shabbos by, by engaging in those activities. Meaning, that which Hashem says, I want you to do actively, let's say for the Shem and Amishcha, for the Ketoros, I want you to actively create these things, but in the wrong context. If you try to recreate these things, you try to duplicate it in a different context, that's not holy. That's profanity. And that is, that is a disgrace. And the same thing with Shabbos. The holy avoda of creating the Mishkan, I want you to do it but only in a certain context. Because if you do it in the wrong context, you do it outside the Hagdara, outside of the Misgeras, the framework that I give you, then you're violating my will. By working on Shabbos, you might be saying, oh, Hashem, but it's the Mishkan, and I'm almost finished. Just let me finish, let me finish. No. Like, you, you, this is a time where you're not allowed to do that. It's Shabbos. You know, Bidafka, you stop. Not, you, I don't care how almost finished you are. You're now secularizing the avoda of the Mishkan and you're secularizing the, 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 the value of Shabbos. What was the Chet Egel? The Chet Egel, whatever of an attempt it was to be able to serve Hashem, it was a secularizing of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Because what, what is to secularize HaKadosh Baruch Hu? The, you know, when, when we talk about secularizing something, what we really mean is making something mundane, making something more worldly, making something that should otherwise be removed and held on a very high pedestal, so lofty, that we should feel a sense of distance. Shabbos reminds us that although we're supposed to know that Hashem is here and there and everywhere, but at the same time, 
he's also removed. And there are certain times that there's higher concentration of Hashem. And I can't just, you know, have Shabbos every day. I can't just do the Ketores whenever I want to or for my own purposes. And I can't just have Harsinai every single day, even if to a certain degree we should always have the inspiration of Hashem. But there are certain things, Hashem says, you cannot recreate that. Don't try to recreate what you saw at the Merkava when I came down to Harsinai. Don't make Elohei Chesav Elohei Zav. And that's what the golden calf was. It was an attempt to make an everyday experience out of something that wasn't meant for every day. An attempt to secularize what should otherwise be holy. You think this is holy, you think this is great, but that's, but that's a problem. You think that your heart's inspired and you want to do something with it. Guess what? Parshas Truma, Parshas Tetzava. Hashem says, if your heart is so inspired, there is a way to be inspired and to go with that inspiration and to do something that's really holy. But the, the difference between Truma, Tzava, and Kisisa, as we'll talk about a little bit more next week, is that the Mishkan was completely within the, within the framework of what Hashem said you would do with your inspiration. The Egel Azov was, we're inspired and we're a little bit worried and we're anxious, and not doing it in accordance with the Ratzon Hashem. Now that we understand a little bit what the Chet Egel was, at least in the Parsha, Let's try to understand on the larger scheme of things. Because we spoke a little bit in, in Parsha Panorama for Parsha's Para, but now we're going to have to come back to it now and broaden it to the entire Torah. Because here at Parsha Panorama, we know that one single Parsha is not just a single Parsha, but it's in a, it's in a broader scheme of the entire Torah. And we just came off of the high of Kabbalah's Torah. We spoke a little bit about why we had a digression, a detour to talk about the Mishkan. And maybe because we should have realized that that was always the alternative to the tragic Chayta Egel, the Egel that did not have to happen. But think about this. If Harsina, which we said in Parsha Panorama for Parsha Yisro and for Parsha Mishpatim, if Harsina represented the high of returning to Gan Eden, we are with the Zuhama, the filth, the spiritual filth that was put into us through the Nachash in Gan Eden now was being removed from Kla Yisrael. Now we are up on our high pedestal where all the nations of the world can receive blessing through their connection to us because now we are Hashem's people. So is that something that we would be able to completely maintain? Is that something we could possibly ruin? And the golden calf represents a crossing of that boundary where, once again, in a certain sense, we eat from the Eitz Hadas Tovarah, where Hashem said, I have a commandment. You were making a commitment. We said Parshas Mishpatim was all about the Knisa Labris, the terms of the contract. Right? The same terms of the contract that we seemingly violate in Parshas Kisisa. But what was the point of that contract? We said that Mishpatim, the Kabbalah Satorah aspect of Mishpatim was needed. Yisro wasn't sufficient. Because in Yisro, we said, okay, we're going to do the mitzvahs. That was a commitment to do the mitzvahs. But the commitment to the terms of the contract, what happens if we don't listen? Right, there were two parts to Gan Eden. There was simply to guard the garden, you know, live and do the things that you're supposed to do. And then there's, if you do the wrong thing, here's what's going to happen. And the Chet Egel represents the, here's the wrong thing, and if you do it, here's what's going to happen. And we suffered greatly for it. In fact, we still suffer today. Because every single Avera we do has infused in it that decision to go against what Hashem wanted us to do. A decision to take on the, whatever consequences are going to come with going against Ratzon Hashem. But now we can also appreciate 
what the Ramban tells us is the renewal of the Tanoim. After the Chet Egel, when Hashem finally gives us the new Luchos, the Luchos that were shattered because we completely missed the point of the Luchos, now when we get the Luchos again, there's a renewal of the contract. We have the Shalosh Ragalim again, Basar Bacholov, a little bit of an emphasis on Avodah which is very reasonable. And we have in this new aspect, this, uh, this, this new renewal of the contract, this is us getting a little bit of a second chance. And, and it's important that we have this, because even if we fail, either as individuals or as a nation, so the Gemara Nevodah tells us that Hashem allowed, you know, he, Hashem allowed us to have the challenge of the Chet Egel. Obviously, we always had free choice. But as a nation, we were not protected from the Chet Egel because Hashem, put, you know, Hashem allowed this into the Bria so that we could ultimately do Tshuva if we should ever mess up again. So Parshas Kisisa is very important. There's a reason why we read the, the special pieces from Kisisa every Tainas Tzibor. It is because the Tshuva that comes, that emerges from Kisisa, is something that we could always tap into, meaning we don't have to live with the fallout and the aftermath of the Chet Egel forever. But we can always use the story of the Chet Egel as inspiration to rectify and to mend our relationship with Hashem. And that's something that's particularly inspiring, especially when we consider that rectification of the Chet Egel brings us back up to that Gan Eden standard, the Kabbalah Satora standard. And as we said in Parsha Panorama for Para, the Pesach standard. Because what was Chet Egel, if not an about face, from our Kabbalah Satora, which was the whole climax of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, now, as Rosh Hashem, we, we, we take the steps forward. We take the steps forward to, you know, w- you know with a little bit of, um, you know, the, with a little bit of reparations in a certain sense, Moshe Rabbeinu has to wear a mask now. Okay, we have to wear masks. Serving Hashem with masks is, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the ideal. But you know what? These are steps forward. And when we take these steps forward, Be'ezras Hashem, we'll be able to mend that relationship, learn the terms of the contract, understand that, you know, there has to be a balance between our inspiration and our anxious may, anxiousness, maybe, in terms of how to serve Hashem right when we want to serve Hashem. Also recognizing that there's a misgeras. There are certain things that are obligatory, certain things that are mandatory, certain things that are absolutely prohibited, and, and, we, and certain things that cannot be compromised. And all the, you know, the love and tolerance in the world will not allow for a compromising of Ratzon Hashem. And Be'ez Ras Hashem, with, with, with striking that balance, will be able to, you know, to re- be restored to our former glory um, as Hashem's Mamlechas Kwan and Begay Kadosh. And that takes us through Parshas Kisisa and Be'ez Ras Hashem. Next week, um, we, we finish off the Mishkan with Vayakil Bikude, and um, they are a double Parsha this year. So we'll finish off Parsha Shemos, we'll finish off Sefer Shemos rather. And, um, and Be'ez Ras Hashem, we will try to understand exactly what Vayakil Bikudi are really adding to this panorama of Sefer Shmos and the panorama of the Torah at large. In the meantime, thanks for joining us. The database have an absolutely wonderful Shabbos.